In today's episode, I catch up with my head coach, Peter Gunnery. We talk about a wide variety of different areas. We were actually going to meet up for coffee today and I just said, why don't you just come round? Let's record it as a podcast and see where it goes. So quite excited about sharing this episode. Uh, I say at the end, if you enjoy this, please let me know via Instagram. I'm going to say it again now at Gary Gun Show. If you like this episode, this format, send me a direct message and let me know that you've enjoyed it. And I will catch you on the next episode. Yeah, so we were just talking before we recorded this and I thought we might as well wait and continue the uh, conversation. So Pete and I obviously both see the same physio and we're both going through similar sort of exercises with stability. We, we both read Peter Attia's book and it helped us to uh, think about stability as we as we age basically and getting a bit stronger so pete yeah you were saying that you you're doing single leg bridges gone if you continue yeah so i've um i've got a, a series of stability exercises and what, there's a two bridge variations one's a single edge bridge where you do a bridge you lift your foot up you hold it for a second or so you put it down and you, you switch sides the second one which i'm supposed to do straight after doing 10 reps of that one is you you do a bridge and then you walk your feet out until you're practically parallel to the floor but the only contact points you're allowed are your your heels and your feet and the tops of your shoulders so you're in a you're still in a bridge and it fires through your your hamstrings it's the only exercise i've ever come across which fully hits your hamstring and nothing else it's agony but amazing at the same time <laughs> yeah it's interesting you say it because the, the way i'm doing i'm just doing single leg bridges and i'm finding them really hard because they essentially i have an instability in my body where my left thigh and, and hamstring aren't the same size as my right so i'm trying to build up strength and what's interesting about the single leg bridge is that you have to push through your foot to be able to do it and what i'm struggling with is being able to generate the strength to push through my foot with my left foot which is the weaker side and then to turn my glute on to actually finish the exercise off but it's such a simple exercise and i find it so difficult and you can't really listen to music or do anything. You have to be fully focused to be able to do it. Otherwise, you can't really do it properly. It's actually, it's much harder than lifting weights, much harder than run, running, <clears throat> much harder than any other exercise I think I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because the one which gets me is, um, I don't actually know what it's called, but I have a resistance band and I've got to do side steps, but staying central. I can't, I have to, I have to watch myself in the mirror because I go all over the place. My whole body is like a little snake. It's terrible. Yeah. But you have to focus you can't you literally have to focus and, and keep yourself in one spot in order to do it but yeah it's it's incredible it's interesting as well because similar to that i'm doing the resistance band around my knees squatting into coming up on your toes to do the whole sort of the whole chain and i think what's interesting about this you know we talk about this a lot about how life reflects how you are on the inside and you know talking about sort of the training courses that we do with our clients we over the years obviously got down to sort of the fundamentals and base level foundational principles. We, we talk a lot about scaffolding technique, as you know, like building scaffolding, then taking it away. And it's exactly what we're doing in our fitness lives. It, yeah. 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 100%. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like the, the same lessons in a different part of your life. And what, what I've learned, which sounds ridiculous because I talk about this all the time and we talk about it all the time, is that. Even with any change in your life, you have to be open to it, first of all. So you've got to be open to going backwards because normally I'd be like, let's go and push the sled at the gym. Let's go and lift some weights. Let's go and do martial arts. Whilst they all have their benefit, 
the risk of injury obviously goes up massively. And if you think about that relating to dating lives, it's like, yeah, you could, we could coach people externally and say, right, yeah, go and like talk to like 20 new women this week. And, and yeah, you'll, you'll feel good and success will happen, but you're also going to get injured because you're going to get rejected. You're, you're not really going to know what you're doing and you've got no foundational understanding of what it is. So I really understand the, the, the process of having an external goal, but then asking yourself, what internal change do I need to go through to be able to do this? And for me, the internal change I needed to go through was to give myself more time for training. So rather than going running because I've got 45 minutes or an hour spare, now I'm like, I've got 90 minutes and I dedicate that 90 minute window, whether it's stretching, whatever it is, just I had to allow myself that respite in my day to give myself 90 minutes to do it. I'm curious, Pete, what was your, what was your, what internal change did you need to go through to focus on stability rather than the external, this build some muscle, you know, let's, let's get lean. Like what was the change you went through? Um, I mean, we could, we could go right back to when I first started training from not being able to consistently train that it was finding something which I enjoyed. So skipping initially, then the sled, et cetera, et cetera. But to go from something which you really enjoy to go back to something which let's be honest is really boring really not that fun to do i i had two things the first one was i realized that it's fun because you're good at it as well so you have to go through six weeks of getting used to the exercise and then six weeks of actually getting results which changed changed my mentality as soon as i changed that mentality that helped but the second thing was like i thought i had pretty good stability because I used to have pretty good, not just pretty good, I used to have amazing stability because as a, because of, as a swimmer, you have to have most of your stability muscles have to be strong. Obviously, over the years, I've got injured and I've not trained and etc. And then I realized that all that stability has just gone out the window or a lot of the lower stability has gone out the window. And it, it's quite scary when you, you have a perception and then you realize that perception is almost completely incorrect <laughs> we've, we've all had that perception false confidence when uh you know you're having a dating interaction and it's gone well on a night out and then you go and talk to someone else and you get rejected i think nature has a way of putting us all back in our place quite quickly when we uh when we jump the gun it's interesting just picking up on something you said there though that that I, that really resonates um with me with with regards to like the things that we find exciting we tend to focus on i was journaling about this yesterday because i wanted to produce some content on this and the content i wanted to produce is how have you ever i was going to ask this actually at the beginning of a, a video have you ever got good at something that you hated or you weren't very good at at the start that was going to be my hook for the start of a video and i thought to myself have i ever done that and the answer luckily <laughs> was yes Whilst I focused on areas I'm good at, such as speaking, like being in public, being sociable, coaching and training, there are other areas in my life that I was really, really awful at. Um, again, I've got some content coming out on this as well, but one very specific one, which really is worth talking about here, is when I was young, my mum, we had like, had two older brothers and when we were misbehaving, my mum would punish us by making us go and read a book, right? So she'd say like, right, go and sit over there, read that book. And then like, I remember one occasion, my brother clearly wasn't reading his book and my mum came out and tested us all. And she said like, what was like John's brother's name? And he went Frank and he unbelievably got it right, right? Which meant that he was allowed to go and play computer games and I was left sat there reading. But what my mum didn't realise is she was conditioning me to hate reading because it was a punishment. And what I recognised in my mid twenties was that 
I couldn't read. I tried to read something. And we all know someone that says, I can't concentrate when I read, right? I was one of them. And what I realized is that it's because I was conditioned not to be able to read and not to be able to enjoy reading. So I went through the arduous process that took over a year of reading for 15 seconds, feeling anxiety, feeling stress, and then over a period of time, desensitizing myself to it till I could eventually read. And since then, I've been an avid reader. So I was thinking that's definitely an area that was completely weak that I've made very, very strong. I was wondering if you had an area, Pete, like that, that was really an an area of weakness for you. I mean, where to start, to be honest? Um, I mean, on the on the flip, just on the flip side of that, though, just specifically on reading, I was the other way around where growing up, I loved nothing better than to sit down with a book and be ignored. I would try and not go outside as much as I was a sporty and I loved to play cricket, rugby, swimming, etc. I would much rather have curled up with a really good book inside. Get into my 20s, I no longer, I, I didn't pick up a book for 10 years. So, so I had the actually the opposite of that. I had to relearn to enjoy it, which again touches on the same thing. And the relearn is actually harder than the initial learn sometimes because you you already know what it feels like to be good and to enjoy it. So when you're not as good as you expect yourself to be and you want yourself to be and etc., you make it harder to actually relax and enjoy the process again because you haven't you've already. You've already been good at something. I, I completely get that. And and actually that reminded me of a consultation call I did because when you're when you used to be confident with women and you lose your confidence, it's really, really hard to get it back. And there's something I always do in this situation. So I did a consultation call and a, a client said to me, potential client said to me, um, I want to get my confidence back after explaining to me his wife cheated on him and he'd, you know, lost his self-confidence. And I, I said to him, That's a really terrible goal. And he's like, he paused. He's quite a smart guy. He paused and reflected and then said, I want to have more confidence than what I did before. And I was like, bang, let's get to work. Because, you know, setting a boring goal of getting back what you've once lost is really boring. And it's not really exciting. So it's like when you are going to regain or try and regain anything, make it a better goal. And whatever that may be. I mean, I know you've since got into reading classic literature. So perhaps you did inadvertently do that in your own life. It's just interesting. It's an interesting mind uh, mentality. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I'd, I'd read most of the British classics by the time I was 18. So going back and reading, I mean, I've, I've picked up some of the Russian classics and some of the and the French classics again. So, I mean, after many years, you've read Count of Monte Cristo and you understand why I was raving about it for so long. But yeah, I, I actually found getting back into reading more about the style of narration and more on so while i still do read some fiction i'm a lot more going down the the non-fiction and the sort of what can i pick up from this book but it has to be well written like i can't if i'm reading a fiction book i've got a i can get into a character and i can buy into the characters that's the most important thing in any story whether it's fit books etc but i have to be able to believe in something mm. whereas if it's non-fiction and this goes for any entertainment if it's non-fiction i just need to have something which captures my interest which just makes it a lot easier to get into it's really interesting because i was the direct opposite of that i when i first started reading it was factual it was uh, f- factual only it had to be like you know why would you read fiction what a ridiculous idea that is like what and then you know after i read enough information you know, I realized my, my favorite sort of even factual books were story based where people would like entwine a story with a learning lesson. And I was like, oh, OK. And then I, I looked up like greatest writers that have ever lived. Right. And you can't name one that didn't write fiction. Every single greatest writer, anyone name anyone. They're all um, fiction writers. And I was like, why is that? And I think with age, I recognize that 
we can only learn through stories. So whilst, yes, like factual books are good because you feel like you're getting information, unless you have a story, you have no idea how to implement that information. That's why stories, parables, Greek mythology are so interesting to us because they not only give us nuggets of wisdom, but they tell us how do you implement that. And I think both of us working as coaches, it's so important to give the implementation and not just the learning lesson. And, and that's why I always think like content creation is so interesting because no matter um, how much of my content you watch, you don't know how to implement it in your life. Like you might pick up bits where you can trial it, but you have no confidence to be able to trial it properly. You've got no one saying to you, that's how you do it. Obviously with a lot of one minute content, I don't have the time to to give a story enough for people to be able to do it. But I just thought that whole, like my whole journey reading was just directly opposite to yours <laughs> because you obviously started with the fiction. Um, yeah, I didn't know what you thought about that. I mean, it's, it's funny because when you start at Thomas the Tank Engine and Noddy and then you move up to, to Count of Monte Cristo, Alexander Dumas, uh, like, <laughs> you sort of go through that journey, don't you? But but even even then, I, I agree with everything you say because even, even if you're talking about well-written things, it's also like vocal stories. So people who are very very good storytellers that you listen to and these go to my granddad growing up he would tell stories and i told them and i don't tell them as well as he did because he was just classic and this is in a second language no, not even second this is his third language and it's like and he's a better storyteller than i am now it was mm. unbelievable so i grew mm. up my sister doing english literature at, at university i grew up around a, an amazing abundance of different language um which Oddly enough, just means that when when you do pick something up, you're actually more likely to throw it away in disgust because it doesn't hit your standards, and that's also a mistake. You should give it. You should always give something a chance. You should always take the time to try and understand what's actually happening, rather than making a snap judgment. And this goes in all areas of my life. And I still I still pick up a book or even a film. The number of times I've sat down to watch a film and within five minutes I've, I've written it off because I've gone, this is the same story as I've seen before, rather mm. than being like, let's enjoy it for what it is. And it's a mistake which you can make everywhere. Yeah, I, I completely get that. You know, when you do get into reading classic books, especially for me, classic Russian books, I mean, they're just so beautifully written and the choice of language, um, metaphor, symbol, it's just incredible. And trying to read anything that compares to that is nigh on impossible. And yeah, you, I think you have to accept that you read three awful books to, to appreciate one good one. And that that's kind of my methodology on this. I, I just think that you have to accept that as long as you're reading, that's good. And and sometimes you're going to read stuff better than, better than others. That's just, that's just part of the process, right? I don't see how you can, you can't mitigate that. You just have to put time into working it out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're on the same page. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. On, honestly, on, on this as well, there's, we're talking specifically about, well, more specifically about books. But if you think about, I mean, I know you read the book, you've got me into the seven basic plots. And I was I was thinking about some of the things he says about un, the, the very early level of um, reading. You tell story, certain types of story about leaving home, but coming back again, growing up, etc. And I was looking into, or not looking into, but thinking about some of the other mediums we have these days whether tv shows you can think of in our generation have been teletubbies um and then you look at so so the japanese anime for for kids and that sort of thing and how even though they're completely different how they are doing the same thing they're Mm. they're teaching they're trying to teach you how to everything's going to be okay at the end of the day that's what it kind of boils down to is you you've got you've got people around you who are going to help you everything's going to be okay and then it builds into you can do it yourself Mm. 
And I think we we can take those learning lessons as adults. Like everything will be okay. You've just got to take that first step and then the second step and then mm. just keep going on through. That, that's exactly what we were. So I was getting to earlier, which is that when you have a story that you listen to, it enables you to see the future because you you are treading on the path that someone else has, has already trodden. And when I first sort of launched Social Attraction, or even before that, when I was immersing myself in success manuals, what I was really doing was trying to work out how to become successful. And I would read and listen to other people that have trod the path. And that way, you know, when I got into situations, financial difficulty, almost financial ruin, I had a path because I'd taken the time to study and understand what other people had done in the same period, which is to be unfazed and to reaffirm your goals and to just keep going. And eventually with persistence, you develop resilience, you change your personality and you start to see some success. I only knew that because of the stories that I'd read. Now, for me, it doesn't make a difference whether a story is real or not. It makes no difference. The story is either beneficial for you or it's not. And, you know, with all stories, as we know, there's a degree of um, degree of creativity. You get tell the same story to an audience 10 times. I'm telling you, it's a better story at the 10th time because you've got the feedback of telling it. So every story, as we know from history as well, is often told by the victors. But it's because with the more telling of a story, the more you actually get closer to these plots that that were in the book. And and the more we resonate with them, you know, like the hero's journey, going outside your house, something happens and you're in hell and then finding a boon and then working your way back out and becoming more successful and marrying the princess. We all want to know what happens. And, you know, just something as simple as a basic hook. Like I remember start doing an event years ago and, and I opened up my event, room full of guys, everyone's sort of talking. And I opened up and said, I got on the tube this morning and a super attractive girl walked in. And the room just fell in silence because everyone wants to know what happens. And that's the beauty of storytelling. You can really, um, um, you can really educate people and also educate yourself in the process. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) this is the thing about storytelling. It's like you can, it's the the, um, seven, no, sorry, the four learning lessons, learning stages. And I think with storytelling, it's the same thing. Mm. By learning to absorb a story and understand what you, you don't even need to know what lesson, I mean, you think Aesop's fables and and the, the moral of each story, you don't necessarily even need to know the moral of the story or understand the moral of the story to get something out of it. Yeah. But being able to tell a story, especially if you've got a goal in mind with that story, if you if you learn how to tell a story that's completely abstract but has a message underneath, and that that's again another skill of learning to understand subtext, whether whether speaking or listening or reading, and that that kind of mentality i think picking up subtext from stories from mm. reading is is probably the first step that's probably where i first yeah. other than being told what subtext was that's probably where i i kind of learned how to read subtext i completely understand i mean a story that springs to mind this old guy's like 70 years old and he's, he's uh, on the floor and he's planting a seed to create a new tree and this guy walks past and says mate you know what are you doing like there's you know that that's going to take like 70 years to grow you're never going to see it and he looked over and he said, you see that tree over there? And he said, yeah, he said, why do you think we get to appreciate it? And the guy said, I don't know. He goes, because someone else decided to plant one for our generation. And, and like, it's, it's just a great example of a story, which is indirect, but beautiful. And we all intrinsically know what that story means, which is not to be selfish. You know, there's so many lessons you can draw from such a break. But if I said to you, don't be selfish, it doesn't mean anything. But within a story, it's beautiful. 
Yeah, and the best part about that story is that actually, I actually have exactly that story as a part of my life in terms of I once asked, I think it was my granddad on, on my farmer's, the farmer's side of my life, and I asked him, like, why, why don't you cut that oak tree down? Like, it's in the middle of the field. It's, it's taking up field space. And he goes, somebody planted that back in 1200. I am not taking that heritage away. Mm. Unfortunately, it's now blown out. It rotted and, and blew over. But the, mm. the thing is, that's a 1200-year-old oak tree. Yeah. Why, why would you even think about doing that? It, you, you know, like, it's so interesting. I, I was taking my dog hiking um, about an hour away from where I live. And there's a, a place, um, near, I think it's near Southampton, where there's, they have yew trees that are like thousands of years old. And there's like an area of them. And when you go in there, there's a piece there that you you can't explain. So it, it's really, you just feel calm. And you think, why is this? And it's because obviously there's, they've, they've been there, they've seen it, they've, they've done it, they're interconnected. And there's just a a calmness that comes with their age. And I just, I find that so interesting. I just think that's, you know, with regards to sort of heritage, culture and trees, it's often an area that we completely overlook and it's just so vitally important. Yeah, 100%. And also water. So most people don't realise that if you, even if, even in London, everyone's drawn to the rivers, everyone's drawn to the lakes in the parks and people don't realise why. And it's just because it's, water's life-giving. Mm. I mean, we live on the coast and it's not the same. It's not yeah. the same as being by a lake or a, or a river. And if you're with yew trees, there probably is a water source nearby as well, mm. which just adds to that mm. experience. It's, it's so true. And just sort of going back to what we're saying about storytelling, it's like, you know, the way I used to train clients to tell stories is I used to start with, you know, motivation, like A to B story. How did you overcome adversity? And, and you know, we'll go through the story arc and give them confidence doing it. Then we'd look at what motivates you. Then we'd look at like what you're looking to achieve in your life. But the thing is, it, what I realized is that's an outside in approach. I'm saying to you, you tell these types of stories because, you know, these are the stories that, that everyone likes to hear. And it's like, that's not the case, actually, because when you self-express any story, I guarantee it follows one of the known story arcs, whether it's rags to riches, whether it's hero's journey, whatever it may be. So now when I'm training clients to tell stories, the way I do it is I give them a word and I get them to recount their earliest childhood story. And when they do it three or four times and they get into it, what they realize is that they've got an untapped resource of really interesting stories. And because when they were young, there was more emotion attached to it. When they speak, they come alive. And it's like, wow, this person who was really dull, dry and boring now is actually showcasing some real personal charisma. Do I care whether it's an A to B, a motivation or getting to see story? I couldn't care less because what we've done is opened up the floodgates for this person to self-express and to demonstrate and feel charismatic. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something whenever I've had a client in the last sort of six months, I've always, I found that they were, when, when they were trying to think of a particular thing, a particular time they would become very very wooden and stiff and it would become am i delivering this right am i boring and so much thing as soon as you take that away you can still put a lot of pressure on in terms of making it difficult because that's if you can do something really hard in in a set environment it's a lot easier to do out and about but it was exactly the same thing it was finding out what somebody what somebody specifically found exciting and interesting about their lives currently as well so mm. somebody who was basically thought thought he was boring everyone stiff suddenly hit on a subject that he found very very boring initially found one tiny little spark of all oh, this made made me happy and the whole story changed mm. and it took him 
I think I made him talk for five minutes. Mm. But at the same time, after two minutes, the last three just went because he got really engaged in his own story. And I think that's what you're trying to get. You want to be engaged in your mm. own story. Oh, it's so true. When, when people ask me, like, oh, what, what, what topics do you talk about with women? And it's like, no, you need to express things in your life that excite you or things in your life that you've overcome, like you're self-expressing how you feel. That's more important than any specific topic that you can talk about. And it's like, you know, yes, you can sort of demonstrate empathy by connecting with someone, but leading is more important. And you lead by example, by sharing some of your stories first. That's the ultimate way of doing it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot, the, one, of the, one of the biggest um, biggest questions and problems that I've, that I've come across with clients is how, how do I... How do I get girls to talk more? Because a lot of a lot of guys struggle with listening, actually. Um, and I think it actually comes down from what you just said. And that would be you want to talk more in order to listen because you need you need to give them some a part of you that they can latch onto and connect with in order for them to then express themselves in the same way. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's about giving value first. That's it. Give, give what you wish to receive. It's as simple as that. Like this is a fundamental law in any area of your life that we, that we we're aware of, right? It's like you have to give before you receive. It's as simple as that. And it's the same with storytelling. It's the same with anything. If you want to hear someone else's stories, share a story first. The, the other sort of, um, you know, thing that you can do when you do share a story is to end with some kind of question. Because, you know, in my experience of storytelling, often um, when you are sharing something about yourself, people can feel a little bit detached until you make it relatable, which is to ask someone, have you experienced something similar? That's a really good way of ending a story because otherwise you get that storytelling and then there's the deafening <laughs> silence afterwards that no one wants. Yeah, yeah the, it's, it's either the deafening silence or it's you get applied with a thousand questions and then you're especially if you think you think of a dating situation you're in a date and you tell a story and it might be the best story ever and she's really engaged she then talks about your story for the next three hours you go away she doesn't want to see you again because she didn't express herself even yeah. though she was really engaged in what you're talking about so you can't you have to have that balance it's true and i, I guess like one of the one of the things that we sort of really advocate is launching podcasts so a lot of our clients we get them to launch podcasts just to practice speaking and you know, it's one of the best things you can do. I had a, a vocal coach I was coaching over in Indianapolis in America and he's launching a podcast and he's like, what am I going to talk about? I'm like, anything you want, just practice speaking. That's it. Like share a skill, share a story. It doesn't really matter what you do. Do book reviews. I really um, am not concerned about what you're talking about. The key is to create something. And when you press record, when you're doing a podcast and you press that red button and you are recording something, you are a creator. And that means that you are sharing something. Everyone often talks about, you know, you need to empty your beaker for, before you're um, ready to learn again. And it's true. And one of the ways you can express yourself and get rid of all your knowledge is by sharing it in a podcast. And for me, in however many episodes I've got, I've only able to continue developing my life by emptying myself of my knowledge and the stories that are entwined in my podcast. I never feel the urge to tell them again because they are there forever for anyone to listen to. So that enables me to really go through the process of learning new stuff. I know that one of our clients at the moment, you're working with him on his podcast. I just wanted to, you know, ex explain how it's going. Yeah, it's, it's been quite fascinating though, because, um, I remember the first first uh, he shared his first episode with me on 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 a call, and he 
as soon as he started hearing it, he put his head in his hands and he looked like he was so like upset or depressed about what he, what he was doing. Now, I know that you've you've heard the podcast episode yourself. And yeah, okay, as far as it was his second language and you you had that sort of thinking time and the errs and the and that sort of thing. But if you got rid of all that and and take it as a first episode, it was really really good. And then all all I've been doing with him is saying pick pick topics which are a little bit more interesting and he's he, every time I have heard one of his episodes, he's pointed out what he wants to improve, but he's also pointed out what he liked about the episode. So after I think he was his seventh episode, he went I no longer dislike listening to myself because all I'm looking for is okay. What can I do? What can I? He doesn't even say what will I add next time, which is what we normally say to to clients. He's using my version of it because it's what will I do differently? Because even if you've done something well, if you say what will I do differently, sometimes you'll change that. Mm. And that's not that you can't go back to it either. It's just I want to do something differently rather than I want to add something. And and yeah, it's it's a subtle change and. I think the last episode I heard from him, so I'll, I'll speak to him soon anyway. But the last episode I heard from him, he he was talking about something which I could I could hear in his voice that he was getting excited about. And this, the only other change that I've actually made, other than listening to it and saying this is really good, was just tweaking what he's focusing on in the story. And I think I don't know if you found this, but a lot of guys seem to focus on it's a red car rather mm. than it's a car. And what it, I, I enjoy driving. It's like it's a red car that I drove, rather mm. than I really love driving that car. Mm. Doesn't matter what the car is. Mm. And I think just tweaking the focus onto what actually is important in the story, rather than yeah, I, I think that's it. A lot, a lot of people are too too focused on the uh, specifics when actually the story is more important than the specifics. <clears throat> but again, I mean, I guess it's funny actually because you know, when you're doing like a Hemingway story, which is getting it down to six words, you get rid of all those details and then you can piece the details back in, especially if you're a writer, that's a really like great way of, of doing it. I think as well, like what I like about um, having our clients become content producers and podcasts specifically is that they're allowing themselves to be creative. And I think creativity is an area that's not spoken about enough. No one really understands it to a high enough level yet it's something that we all crave. And I'm of the belief that if AI suddenly took over the world and no one had to work, what would be left? And the answer is art, because that's the only thing that humans can do to creatively give back. I don't know what your your thoughts on this are. I mean, there's always there's always a place for, for work. I mean, in the hypothetical that AI does all the work and there's, there's nothing left for humans to do, it will be, I think the, the world will be split into two. There'll be those who can't be bothered and just end up doing nothing and they're miserable because they're doing nothing and then there'll be those who will try and find meaning in their life as as they do now the same the same thing it'll just be where's the meaning mm. and the meaning won't be in creating i don't know products it'll probably be in um, helping others it'll mm. be in creating mm. art it'll be in some people find that meaning in exercise mm. i mean you'll have all these things and there will be ai written stories and there'll be human written stories mm. and I think the the people who are writing the stories will be really upset with AI and the people reading them probably won't. Yeah, no, I get it. So it's, it's that natural progression, isn't it? And everyone, there's a little bit of unease about the direction in which it's going to go. I think, um, you know, one thing this sort of just reminded me of, which again, I've sort of made notes on to do some content on, is about friendship groups in your life. And 
whether you should have people in your life if they're not adding value. And I used to say no, but now I've come to a slightly different perspective on that, which is that I feel like you need a goal. So if you have friends in your life, you need a goal to work on together because that creates a bond. You know, if you go to war together, then you're, you know, your brothers forever. And, and I really see the value in working towards goals together just to make it relevant for the, for the everyday person on this. When we were in um, Stockholm doing a training course recently, we, Pete and I did a four day course with a client over there. And what was really interesting is that the last sort of 10 weeks, I've been flying all over the place doing all these courses. Pete's been doing courses in the UK. And I was like, look, let's just do one together because this is like, you know, just be good fun. And what I learned from the experience is that a victory is much sweeter when it's shared. And, you know, when I was doing my courses without you being there, I'd finished the course and I almost felt like, okay, that was a relief that it went well. Like, okay, you know, because obviously the, the standards we have and the way we go about it, it's a lot of pressure on us to make sure it does go well. And obviously we want the client to do well. So there's a lot of pressure on, on a three-day course or four-day course to make it go as, as good as possible. So I just felt relieved, like, you know, lucky that went well. But when we did it together, I had a different experience together. I, it was one of celebration, like we've worked together to achieve this goal. And you don't get that by yourself. You do not get the same feeling of that shared experience because there's only one energy. And I think when two energies come together, I think it is, it's like tenfold the experience. I, I don't know, because obviously you work with a lot of people by yourself and we do courses together now. Well, what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with the um, with, with the whole, as soon as you've got shared goals, you you go for it, go for it. It's the enjoyment factor, I suppose. I suppose that's kind of why if we go back to, to exercise where we're to use, using the sled, like, it was more enjoyable when you're doing it together and splitting it and the same, same thing in anywhere. It's easier to be accountable, but at the same time you, you push each other further. So on the course, like you've also got like, we, we also have slightly different strengths as well. So there's the way we look at the world, the way we, we go about it. And because we have such high standards, we also, we, we notice things and we push, push each other, even by not, we don't necessarily say, Oh, you need, you should try and do this. It's like, Again, again, storytelling. We we just say, "Oh, this happened." It triggers something in the other, and then the next phase of our development as coaches just happens by having that interaction and seeing each other doing doing our thing. But yeah, as far as the actual goals concerned, it's like if if you if you achieve a goal, you have a, a momentary, and this is this isn't necessarily coaching goal, but if if I if I could do a hundred press-ups in a day for example the first time i hit a hundred press-ups in a day i had a fleeting sense of yeah i've done it but it wasn't celebratory it was more just a there's a tiny bit of satisfaction but then it's like well now what mm. whereas if it's with somebody and this also goes back to something you've said in the past on i don't know if it was a podcast or a video blog where you were halfway up um the mountain outside edinburgh and you're saying you need to pause. And mm. when you're with somebody, you basically are forced to, to pause and be like, yeah, we've done this. Yeah. And also you have the shared memory <clears throat> of doing something together. But I, I tell you how, interestingly enough, because, you know, I've had my this business for 15 years, right? I got over the feeling of doing it by myself a few years ago. It's, it's interesting this, right? Because 
when you have a business, if you listen to stereotypical sort of coaches, specifically American coaches, they'll talk about how, you know, financial goals, how many courses you're going to sell, how, you know, how you're going to do this, how you're going to do that. And it's all sort of monetary. The thing is, when you get to a stage where you're earning more than enough money anyway for, for what you need, it's like, what's what's motivating me other than greed and ego to go to the next level up, right? And I, I always struggled with that. I was like, yeah, but so what, you know, why do I need to sell more courses? Because, you know, it's fine as it is, right? I, I'm progressing my ability to speak and I'm I'm increasing my value to people. But the idea of like trying to sell stuff, I mean, that's never sat well with me. And to be honest with you, this is a bit of a tangent here, but like, I never sell to anyone because I don't have to. It's an exchange. It's like, the, you know, we do a consultation call. I express this is the training. This is the investment amount. But it's an investment both ways, right? You invest money. We invest our time, expertise and effort. So I'm not selling anything to you. And in fact, a lot of consultations calls, I don't take on clients if their goals are wrong. And then they're trying to sell themselves to me about why I should take them on. But it's never a sale. I don't believe in in, in selling per se. I just think it's a process of a value exchange. Um, but going back to what I was saying before I, you know, went off to have to a little bit there was, um, the, the thing that made it different for me was I read a book called, um, thou shall prosper 10 commandments of wealth by a Jewish rabbi. It's a highly recommended book about, you know, why Jewish people generally speaking, create more wealth than the everyday man. And he talked about the idea of tithing, which is to give away 10% of money that you earn. And what he was saying is that most people think that successful people give away money when they when they have it he said it's not true if you look at anyone who tithes that's what made them success successful it wasn't the other way around and i was like really and then he started talking about the, the emotional benefits you know all this that yeah so i was like okay i'm just going to start small one of the one of the other things he talked about was like if you give money you're essentially saying to yourself that you're not short on money so it gets rid of the the chasing mentality so i'm like okay i'm just going to give money and you know at that time i really wasn't earning that much money and i can't remember what it was when i started tithing so it's very easy, to, you know, if you earn two grand, it's very easy to give away 200 pounds, right? It's, it's not much money, but it has a really weird impact. So first of all, you stop chasing because you realize you have enough. Amazing impact that made. Second of all, you feel calm. And what I mean by that is when you give money to charity, when you donate, you go for a walk and you notice nature, you notice trees, you notice birds, you notice all these things you don't notice before because your anxiety has been reduced. So I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So off the back of like tithing, what I did was I reaffirmed my business goals, but rather than making it about me, I made it about charity. And that was what made the massive difference to growing my business. Because when I made it about me, my business was never that successful. It was okay. When I made it about, if I do this amount of money or this amount of selling, I can give this amount to charity. I then focused on amounts of money I could give to charity and the byproduct was the business would have to be more successful. Now, I don't uh, publicize, you know, exactly the amount I give to charity. I don't put it on social media. I can talk about it now because it's relevant to the conversation. I normally donate to Dogs Trust. I'm a huge dog animal lover. And I think that um, giving money to dogs for me, I grew up with them and I have huge empathy for them. So that for me is a really worthy cause to give money to. Now, interestingly enough, as you go through this journey of giving money, as your business becomes more and more successful, becomes harder and harder to give away 10%. Going back to what I was saying, you sell £2,000, you give 200 that's easy. Try sell 50 grand and give away £5,000. Like £5,000, which you weren't earning however many years ago, to give that away? Why would I possibly do that? So you're challenged at every single level when you do give. 
And my experience is that the more you give, the better you feel. And when you are donating £5,000, it's really easy to think, oh my God, and to get stiff. Or it's also really easy to say, I'm giving this money out of choice. So I'm not really an advocate of setting up a direct debit for charities. I don't think that's the way it should be done. I think it should be an active decision every single month or whenever you feel like it, that I'm going to give this amount to charity. And in fact, even when we were in Stockholm and the client decided to do another day's training with us, I gave away 10% of his full cost of his course, not even the profit we made from it, because for me, it was additional revenue. So I didn't care. I'm just going to give it away. So, so for me, it's like taking away your ego and making it about someone else. That really enabled me to change the way that I viewed not only like setting goals in my life, but also just about leading a value driven life. And it's okay to earn money if you use it for good things rather than just buying yourself loads of nonsense that you don't need. Yeah, <laughs> not much, not much more you can add to that. To be honest, I think it's like um, I think a lot, a lot of people seem to make the mistake, and a lot of people are like, "We really, you really need to get success in your life." And I know, uh, is it Grant Cardone is very much like it's your, it's your, it's your duty. Yeah, it's your duty to be to be successful in your life to look after other people, which actually touches on a point of like, regardless of what area of your life you're in or whatever your life you're talking about, being able to look after those people in your circle of influence is massive. The biggest difference I've found in the last four, sort of five years of my life is who's in that circle of influence and how big that circle of influence is. So it started off, I started off trying to put too many people in there and then it shrunk down to about, it probably shrunk down to about three people and that's all, that none of my family were in there weirdly. And now it's re, having had those three people and now I've overcome that and in the same way, it's like I'm now, growing and expanding it again and it it's not a uniform or oh, just grows and grows it grows and it shrinks and it grows and it shrinks yeah. and but every time it grows it grows bit it grows a lot bigger it, it i completely get what you're saying and actually like when it comes to sort of giving money to charity right the way that thou shall prosper talks about it is you can donate money to charity but you can also do two other things you can invest because that's another way of donating money. So you don't have to just donate. I mean, personally, I believe you should donate 10%. And then if you want to invest, invest outside of that, right? That 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 would be my viewpoint on this. But like, I understand that charity, obviously charitable organizations, but it could also be that one of your family members is struggling. So you give them that money this month. And you know, if you're going to give something, don't expect it back. And that's what, again, one of the universal laws, don't expect anything back. So say to your family member, listen, I know you're struggling, had a good month, here you go, don't worry about it. That's it, done, I don't want to talk about it, it's yours. Like, that's power for me. Like, that, that's, that's someone that's living a good life, right? That's a good human being, right? You can't not be if you're doing that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, this, I mean, this goes right back to when I was at university and I had more money than I knew what to do with. I mean, okay, university standard, so it's only a few grand, but at, the, at that age, and I remember... Um, I think I gave my sister £1,600 to buy a new car. The funny part of this story is she crashed it within two weeks and <laughs> broke it off. But, uh, <laughs> I remember I remember ringing her the, the night, I completely out of the blue, rang her out the, about it. And she was in bits, not because she, I mean, she she was lucky to survive. Like she managed to drive into a flag, uh, not a flagpole, what do you call it, a telephone mast and the, knocked it over and the the ambulance driver was shocked that she didn't even have a bruise on her. Wow. Like they, they were saying, you should be dead. So I had rung her up and she was more worried about the fact that I had lent her, or I say lent her, I'd given her like 1,600 quid to buy the car and the car was no more. And I was like, well, it doesn't matter, does it? Like, it's not like I need the money. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, you're safe. 
Like your worst case scenario is you get the insurance money, you get a new car, you're back yeah. to back on your feet. But, but it was just her perception of this. The value of this was the car and the fact yeah, that I'd given yeah. her the money. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because again, like you, you gave without expecting anything back, right? So for you, that would be a bit of a, a bit of a shock. I, I kind of had something a, a bit similar recently. My um, martial arts instructor, so he um, has been caught up with the Hollywood strikes because he'd been cast. He does a lot of um, choreography, stunt choreography on, on films and he'd been cast on a couple of films. I can't explain what they are, but, you know, it's good money, um, very good money. And because of the strike, it got called off and he wasn't taking on clients, right? Because he had new work coming in. So I bumped into him and I said, how are things? And he said, oh, difficult, blah, blah, blah. So I went on my Instagram and I posted a photo of me graduating with my grade one you can do with Emil. And I said, um, you know, my, my martial arts instructor is taking on three new clients. Uh, you can direct message him. And off the back of my post, he got three new paying clients off the back of it. Now that for me is a charitable donation. It's not where I've given my, my wealth or, or my money to do it. But what it is, is I've accumulated a vast following online by putting out value to the world and I utilize my resources to help someone. So I think there's many different ways you can think about charity. <clears throat> it's essentially just helping anyone with any means that you have available to you. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial. But if you're not giving money financially, I think that you are tight, rigid and holding on to your wealth. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can say it's all right, you give money. But if you go over to India... Um, in southern India, when um, the women there cook cook food, they before they eat, they go and give some of their food to ants because ants are the smallest animal on the on the planet. And what they do is they they give it away to show that they have enough. So for me, like now I'm actively and have been for quite a period of time giving money to charity. I can see the tightness in people that don't, and I can see the rigidity of people that can't do it. And I just think to myself, just try it. Just try it. Just, just wholeheartedly, you know, even the first time you're a bit begrudging to do it, just do it and watch what happens. You'll realize that your whole life gets better. And then you think, why wasn't I doing this before? And then you start to get really like um, open-minded and you think maybe there's some kind of law here. And I, I don't quite know what it is, but I don't know. Maybe we're all here to help each other. And the act of helping, I, I, I don't know what it is. It's above me, but it's interesting. I mean, yeah, there's, I think that's the that's the key. It's it's. I mean, you, you could easily dive into into why why people think certain things as well because if you look at the different mentalities of people, even in the UK, but if you spread out to France and you spread out to the Scandi countries, now I know the Scandi countries pride themselves on being helpful to other people. That's one of the things they they massively pride themselves on. But even there, I mean, I I was there a couple of weeks ago before before um going to Stockholm and it's odd it's not what it used to be it used to be so so community driven and it was very very community driven yeah I was there and it's gone it's changed it's it's like the influx of of different cultures have come in and they are tight and they are rigid and it's all it's all about being maybe not selfish but selfish within their group it's very tribal now um I mean, compared to the UK, it's not mm. tribal at all. But compared to what I remember, mm. it very much is. And I think that's that's why it's because it's 
oh, I'm going to help me and mine mm. rather than I'm just going to, if I see someone who needs some help, I'm going to go over and speak to them. Yeah, I, I do think that the, the mass influx of social media and insecurity in people makes people hold on tight to everything. It's why everyone has anxiety these days. You know, go back to my grandmother's generation. You know, she's a World War II child. She's like, you know, what is anxiety? You know, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, I think that, you know, our, our generation obviously is impacted by these things. And I think what happens is whenever we get anxious or scared, we tighten up. So if you're anxious or scared about, about money, you tighten. Whereas actually the simple act of giving makes you loosen up again. It makes you more likely to receive more. So I get that from like the, the fear-based perspective that giving anything, you know, there's a saying, isn't it? If you want to be good at anything, um, teach someone else how to do it. And it's true because when you, when you teach someone else to do it, you have to learn how to do it for yourself and articulate in a way that they can understand. Yeah, I mean, that, that always boils down to worry, isn't it? Everything everything can boils down to worry. And just, I mean, even though the last couple of weeks, I've, my sleep's gone, I've sleeping 10, well, eight, eight to 10 hours, but I'm waking up tired and my actual sleep cycles, as it were, are, are shot to pieces. And it's because there's tension. It's because you, I don't know what the actual cause is. I have yeah. I have thoughts and feelings on this, but I don't know what the actual cause is. But again, it's it's I've been sitting down over this weekend and I've been trying to help people. I've been going out of my way to do things that aren't about me is it going to help well at the moment i'm i'm hoping but you know, until i until i get through it who knows that's interesting though because my sleep score the last few days has been ruined as well and i've been sleeping just as much as well as what i normally do i, I certainly think when we're tracking our data that there's more more to it than what we recognize i think there you know whether it's the moon cycles whether it's whatever it may be there's something that directly impacts us and you know your sleep scores lower for a week mine's also been lower for a week with no other reason so my routine's been exactly the same so perhaps there is something that, that affects us that we're not aware of i think with stuff like this though it's important not to get worried about it which is you know we're different with the way we track i look at my data you know i look at my sleep score actually every day yeah I, i'm gonna admit that i look at my sleep score every day but I, I don't let it impact me like my sleep score's 40 i do exactly the same as if it's 100 but i generally like to track it over a period of time rather than shorter spurts because i tend to gives me anxiety over tracking anything because i'm like spending my life worrying about all these and i'm like oh this just just calm down like i just look at it monthly whereas i know you track yours a lot more than i do yeah i mean i i I look at the data a lot more than you do, but I also don't have the, I'm not tied to it in, in the same way. So I see the data and I go, okay, what do I, 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 it's more a case of, I want, I want an idea of what's happened every day of the week. So if there is a pattern evolving, mm. I see the pattern. Mm. Um, and the pattern has been since we got back from Stockholm, my sleep hasn't been well. And I've been tired. I, I kind of got, I was going to be tired. I was going to have that. That's part and parcel of what we do. But what what I didn't expect was this weekend was to still have eight hours sleep and the sleep like if my sleep had been okay for two weeks that's one thing because mm. eventually I'll get back but the fact that my sleep was just not I mean forty five minutes of deep sleep and two minutes of REM for the for a whole week mm. something's not right mm. and I but but even then I I still look at that and I still go well I know I'm going to come out the back of it so I just I am more interested in. I need, I need to be able to function. I need to be able to train. Yeah. So I'm going to carry on doing that. And then I'll worry about what small things and all it, what it boils down to is there's some, there's tension in my body somewhere, which is mm. stopping me from relaxing into sleep and getting to sleep. So I just need to relax or yeah. take that stress away. I, I also think, by the way, I mean, I had a similar situation to what you're describing and it was something really stupid. I needed to update my watch software 
because when you're when you don't up, update it it gets out of date so i had a similar week to you and i was like this is nonsense what a load of nonsense this is so i upgraded the software and instantly my heart rate variability went up everything changed so i think maybe, maybe you might want to. yeah i mean if it wasn't if i couldn't feel the effects in my body and, and the tiredness yeah, okay, i would so I'd agree with you well. but I'm, I'm, phys- I'm physically feeling the effects yeah of it. it's interesting as well i think because you know we talk about tracking data like we we track our clients data so when i say like we you know i'm not really one for tracking when people take our training courses um as you know people, we obviously we, we we track everything that they do because the 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 tracking gives us information that we don't have otherwise so it's like we want to know how long interactions last for what their negative thoughts are are there patterns in what they're thinking and all of these offer clues so I, you know anyone that's never fitness watch or anything like that tracking it I think we're we're at a time in in the world where, you know, looking after your health has got to be the primary focus of what you do. Yeah. And that's, that's also key. So one thing, one thing I found was, um, I was, I was walking around and my heart rate was going through the roof, not through, well, not through the roof. I was getting, I was going up to about a hundred beats per minute instead of 80. So normally when I walk, I could, I struggle to get over 80. So all, all these things. And I actually find that I've, I've spoke to um, a couple of clients, not many, but a couple of clients, what their heart rate is before going over and speaking to somebody. And they're like, I, they have a look and they're like, oh, it's this. Send them over and they go go start a conversation. They come back and they go, what's your heart rate now? Okay, we'll go for a walk for a bit. We have a chat and then, okay, now what's your heart rate? And it's so interesting how it spikes, mm. it comes down, but it never comes right back down mm. because there's excitement as well. Mm. So you've got this excitement and nervousness, but both excitement... I think I guess the difference between a sort of anxiety and excitement is an anxiety will give you a sort of more of a tension, mm. which is why we teach a little bit about breathing and I quite like getting people to jump up and down and give themselves a shake just to get rid of it's more about it's like if you think about it as um dynamic stretching. Mm. It's a bit like a dynamic stretch just to get rid of the tension and get the muscles supple. And then you want to get the excitement up, which is more of a it's a different sort of muscular tension which just gets you ready for action. Mm. And that's I mean this this is you can do this in any way of your life as soon as you feel tense mm. get rid of the tension and then get some excitement in your life it's interesting actually because i i have a slightly different mindset to that um when i'm coaching people actually and and there's merit to both because your your yours is a somatic approach and, and mine's sort of the 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 balancing thoughts approach i know you do balancing thoughts as well um they both have their sort of merit i think my sort of overarching aim is to keep heart rate low the whole time. I, I'd rather not have excitement. I'd rather not have anything that releases it. So I think my general heart rate is about 46 beats a minute, maybe 45. And, you know, what I what I look at when I track my data is, when did my heart rate go up? And even during exercise, I'm trying to keep my heart rate lower by breathing slower. So for me, like, the aim of becoming more stoic and more balanced in all areas of my life is, keep, you know, if you keep your heart rate down and it never comes up, unless you're putting it through like severe stress and exercise. I think for me, that's a better mentality. However, you know, when you take a training course with us, obviously there, there's a lot of fear there. Therefore, sometimes you do need to increase excitement to get over that fear, to get over the hurdle, to see what's on the other side. So I also understand that merit. I just look at it in the, in the longer run, longer term and think the aim has to be to lower your overall heart rate. And, and, over a period of, of 10 years, if your heart rate 60, can you get it down to 50? Can you get it down to 45? Like some UFC fighters, their average heart rate is like 36 beats a minute. And I'm like, wow, I'm useless at 46. I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm not a pro elite athlete. 
However, um, I'm very stoic and I've worked on my emotional control probably as much as any UFC fighter has worked on their physical condition. So I look at that and think that's definitely achievable. It's just how. So I'm going through this process at the moment. The other sort of health um, area I'm looking into I'm definitely going to do this. It's just when is to get the blood um, glucose monitoring system, which is a patch you put into your arm and then it gives you feedback on when your blood sugar level spiking. I definitely want to do this. I just know that at the moment, because of everything else that's going on, that's going to be a stress and not enjoyment. So I'm waiting for my life to sort of rebalance itself at the moment. And then once I feel like I'm in more of a flow, I'm then going to invest in one and then see what happens. Because you know, some people can have like a lot of sugar and it doesn't spike their blood sugar at all. Whereas other people, they look at a cake and it it like spikes it. So I'd be curious because I think heart rate is also linked to, you know, your your blood sugar level spiking. All of this is interesting to me. So I think, okay, that would be the next step at the right time, probably before the end of this year. I think that'd be when I'm looking into it. Yeah. So there's a few, a few points on, on here as well, because, um, when I first, well, a couple of days ago, I went to, uh, to uh, blue i mean the uk blue crest um health tests so you get a load of blood tests they did they gave me a, a three minute step on a box test which was hilarious because they were like oh we're expecting your heart rate to get quite high etc etc and i i didn't get out of breath i think my heart rate hit i think it did hit 140 at its peak which uh, fair enough but that might have been when i coughed and then um, they were shocked that it came down from, I think, I think having run to the test center, my heart rate was about 60 when I started this step test. It was back down to 60 within a minute. That's incredible. Like for, for someone who's not an athlete, that's an incredible fitness indicator. So I was like quite, quite impressed with this. But going outside of exercise wise, and I think what, what you're talking about is keeping keeping everything in equilibrium. So I, I I used to have lots of spikes. I used to try and get myself going and excited. But if you get excited, as you say, you're gonna have that drop. Mm-hmm. So it's a useful it's a useful way of getting through a momentary problem, but it's not a sustainable way, mm-hmm. which is where using the balancing of your thoughts and, and mm-hmm. becoming more stoic and getting that equilibrium. And the, the the funny thing is a lot of females when you say i i don't really I, i'd like to be on equilibrium i don't necessarily want to get excited by loads and loads of things they're like well you're missing out so no i'm not because i'm still i can still enjoy things i just don't have to get excited by it i don't have to have that elevated yeah. heart rate etc well that's that's someone trying to influence you to their methodology of thinking i mean not too high not too low right i mean that's the that's the balance and when you are stoic well, you, you feel stoic, like, like I would classify myself as a stoic. Um, I can still let that go. Um, I just realized that if I let that go high, I'm also going to, at some point, let that go low. So you just have to recognize that you can't have one without the other. It doesn't work like that. You can't manage your emotional well-being <clears throat> just on the lower, but not on the upper. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. And I, I think on, on there is I don't miss... I mean, I wouldn't say I'm at the same level as you as in the stoic, in the stoic mindset because you've got a few few more years on me. All right, all right. <laughs> well, more, more into uh, you've got a few more years on me anyway. Yeah, but no. like, but just as a stoic, like you you started probably ten years before I even knew what stoicism was. But even then, I don't miss getting excited by things. I used to get really, really excited to go even to, even to a sports competition. Now I've done a couple of com- competitions relatively recently, and. 
I wasn't excited by it, but I was incredibly focused mm-hmm. and I was incredibly like, I, I will not lose. Especially in the swimming one, I was like, yeah. I'm, I am not losing to anybody. Yeah, you're, you've changed excitement for composure. And I think composure is the sign of a warrior, whereas excitement is of a hero. You know, the hero's journey is the overexcitement. But when you've, when you've gone through enough of the journeys, you become a warrior. And then you can feel the mindset shift, right? The mindset shift is, you know, I'm composed. Because you realise you don't want to waste energy. And as you get older, I mean, I'm 38, you're 32? Yeah, 32, yeah. 32, yeah. You realise that um, you only have so much energy to give. And why waste it on, you know, unnecessary things? And you may think, oh, well, you know, well, you know, you shouldn't be blocking the excitement. And it's like, that doesn't, for me, I'll say it a different way. I don't really like the quick fixes in anything. And for me, the feeling of excitement is like motivation. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. Let's talk about the feeling of joy. You don't get joy in a moment, do you? You don't feel joy. Oh, you get a quick bolt of joy. It doesn't work like that. You get joy, which is a, it's almost like a, um, a, a lasting sensation rather than a fleeting emotion. And that's what you get when you become stoic. You get satisfaction. You don't get excitement. You get joy. You get um, a sense of composure. What's the other? There's a, you get a sense of like um, mental fortitude, like strength. And these aren't fleeting. These are part of you. Yeah, no. And um, it's, it's interesting because there's a, there's a, a lot of people will say our oh, excitement comes from in um from hormones and endorphins etc i actually don't i don't obviously i don't know the science but i would say from my very very basic science knowledge and how i feel i almost feel like excitement's a nervous system thing whereas joy is a hormonal uh, and i think that's yeah. that's how i feel and how i describe yeah. it i i'd 100% agree with you i think that the the aim of stoicism is to develop virtues and virtues are your building blocks in your life they're your foundation so the virtue of giving the virtue of supporting the virtue of standing up what you believe in the virtue of speaking truth these are all things that make you to be um a strong character rather than someone that's out on a Saturday night partying and drinking and trying to hit on women in, you know, it's just, it's so different. Like, yeah, like, you know, it's fun, isn't it? Fun to go on a night out, fun to have some drinks, fun to talk to some girls. Like, yeah, great. Really fun. Where are you the following day? You know, you're hungover, you haven't slept well, great, well done. You know, it's like, instead of that, why don't you actually work on something that's actually really difficult to do, which is to develop the stoic mentality and to become emotionally and physically strong. And off the back of that, guess what? Your life becomes better in every which way. And people look up to you, people aspire to be like you. People don't aspire to be like the idiot that's getting drunk on a night out. It's just, it's, you know, even drinking alcohol, I haven't drunk this year. I know you obviously haven't either, but... You know, in the last five years, I can count on on my hands how often I've had drinks in that time. You know, for me, a drink is a one-off sort of celebration. And and if so, it's one or two. Even then, I haven't drunk this year. I just don't see the need anymore. Yeah, I mean, we we had this conversation. I've got got a little story to tell on this anyway. But before then, there's there's a conversation we had where like, what's a celebration? What, What? When was the, I mean, okay, other than it was actually my 31st because of COVID, but my 30th birthday, that was the one time I was like, let's go and have some drinks. But every birthday since I've moved to, to well, since I've known you, I've rather go to a cafe and have a coffee and a chat than go out because 
that's what I enjoy. So why am I doing something I don't enjoy? Or why am I? How, why do I need to stimulate some? But the, the on a related note, I was um, on the train home from London yesterday, and there was some typical Brighton people on the train. There's four of them: two two guys, two girls. They're obviously married, etc. And one couple was, or one girl was like, "Do up the the taxi to Seaford's an hour? Let's why don't we stay out for a, for a drink in Brighton? Let's have a few drinks in Brighton." Her husband, I think it was, was basically saying, "I'm not really feeling it. I'd rather go home." The other two couples were like, "We're going home. We're not staying out." And they were very much, those two were very much like, this is what we want to do the rest of the weekend for the Sunday. That That's what they were talking about. We're going home, we're going home. This girl was trying so hard to start a conflict in order to get her away with her husband. Mm. And she was sort of trying to manipulate the other couple as well, but more so her husband. And I was sat there and I was going, what is it about? I mean, you've got a kid at home. What is it about? going out and drinking that mm. appeals to you so much right now what is it yeah. why, why is that the thing that you're focusing on it, it's the excitement and the escapism that's it it's like most people's lives they don't bother working hard towards anything they can't experience true joy they can't experience true virtue because they don't they don't work hard enough towards these things and then you're feeling low because you're not goal driven you haven't got anything to get up for in the morning so what do you do it comes to the weekend yeah let's go and have some fun and you know, when people say to me, when they're like, oh, do you want to come out? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. Like, oh, you're really boring. I just, I say, yeah, I am. I am. I, I agree with you. I'm boring. And and it's like, I what's the what's the point in trying to, you know, I probably in my sort of 20s when I was deeply unhappy, I was one of those people that would call someone boring. And now sort of like the age I'm at, I just realized the insecurity in me at, at that period. Adding one more sort of thought to what I just said. I, I really... You know, whatever direction my life goes, I always come back to emotional well-being. And what I mean by that is not being so reactive by things in life. So, you know, you're in a situation, a friend was telling me that he was um, on a night out last week and he's with a group of friends. They're having fun talking about some stuff. One of his friends passed him like some pictures or something like that. And they were just they were just having a laugh, right? Just having a laugh on a night out. And there was a woman on a table that took offense to what he was saying, right? She was drunk. And my friend is like very, very nice human being, right? Just, just a nice guy, right? So I can already tell you that by his character, he wasn't saying anything that he wouldn't have said in front of like loads of people, right? It's never going to be an issue. But she was, uh, she started like jumped up and had a go at him. And he reacted emotionally because he didn't want her or anyone else in the vicinity to view him in a certain way. And this is a mistake. You cannot control what people think of you. And actually, I think most of the times when you feel conflicted in your life is because you are trying to be outcome orientated, which is, I can't control the situation. I need to try and like stand up for myself so people view me a certain way. But what happens if you let go? What happens if you just don't care? And this woman who wasn't even part of their group had a go at him and he just said, okay, What's she going to do? She's going to have another go and he's going to say, maybe. What's going to happen is he's going to dampen it till she looks absolutely ridiculous because he's absorbing the conflict because he doesn't care. The other side of the coin, what happens if he was reacting emotionally like he was? He looks guilty. Why does he look guilty? Because he's trying to hide something. What's he trying to hide? He's not trying to hide anything, but he's trying to control the situation. And stoicism doesn't believe in doing that. And I'm so deeply ingrained in that methodology that of course do I react to things yes but I'm mindful afterwards to recognize I shouldn't do that again and I think life is cyclical in that manner but there's always 
the path to know of being non-reactive. And again, when people say, oh, but you don't experience life properly. No, that's just you saying something that you don't understand. You don't understand stoicism. You don't understand emotional control. You don't understand virtue. You don't understand waking up at four o'clock in the morning like I did yesterday to work on a project that I care about, getting up and recording 50 or 60 new style videos because I was like so composed about the direction of my business that I got up early to do it. And I think, you know, people don't understand that. What what do they understand? Going and having some drinks and having fun. Well, guess what? That's easy. Anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. But what can't anyone do is to work hard and get the real sentiments of joy and I don't I don't even know. I can't express it in words. I'd have to draw you a painting and I'm really bad at drawing, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of the streets uh, quite I tried to draw, I tried to paint a picture. I'm really bad at painting. It's, it's, it's true though, isn't it? It's like, you know, often when I'm planning content creation, I'll draw pictures rather than, than, than write. I should probably share some of these on social media because they're really awful, but I should probably share the picture first and then the podcast afterwards. So you can actually see, oh, okay, there is, there's some, some methodology here. <laughs> yeah. The, the behind the scenes moments, eh? Yeah. It's interesting. I think that, again, I was talking about this in a podcast, the last episode, how, um, you know, over the years of producing content, I get people asking me all the time, like, you know, how shall I go about creating content? And no one really wants to listen to me. What what they want to do is do it the way, the, the way they want to do it, right? So the first thing I say to them is, look, don't worry too much about your first content because, you know, you're not going to like it. But what you need to do as a content creator is to be a content consumer. So you need, if you're going to be a full-time content creator, for me, I think if you, especially if you're a coach, you need to study for two or three hours every day. There's no, you can't get around that because if you don't do that, you run out of content, right? That's, there's no other way around it. So, you know, when people sort of judge my content or or look at what I'm doing, um, what they don't see is the behind the scenes, which is the three hours every day for the last 15 years studying. I mean, that compounds and that's why I can produce so much content. That's why when the camera goes on, I can talk on camera and I can talk about a wide variety of topics because I've earned the right to do that because I've put the hard yards in. I haven't been out partying. I haven't been out chasing after things in my life. I've put in dedication and hard work and that's what pays off in your life. So yeah, there's a there's a story. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but it was the poet laureate of eighteen twenty or something like that. And he said um, he received a, a letter with a, a bunch of poets poetry, and the um, person asked him to rate his poetry. He didn't read the poetry. He wrote back and he said, "How much poetry have you read?" And the the response he received was, "I'm I'm a poet. I don't read poetry." And he said, "A poet reads more poetry than he writes." Yeah. You have to. You're not a poet. Yeah, it's true though. Otherwise, how do you know? I also think the history is important. So the history of what you do is really, really important. Like if you go to the Tate Modern Art Gallery and you look at most of the art, you think, what am I, what is this? It's like nonsense. But then when someone explains to you the history of art and they explain why it's good, you then like, wow, like that is unbelievable. And for me, you know, the history of speakers going, going back to sort of the sort of Romans, the great orators of that time, um, throughout history to people like Charlie Chaplin, obviously I'm a huge sort of fan of his, but you know, there's a, there's a narrative and there's a story of what happens and a lot of like techniques being lost to time that have sort of been reinvigorated when sort of modern content comes out. And I just think it's really interesting because 
you really learn and develop by understanding the history of something. And again, this is why sharing childhood stories with um, women is such an empowering thing to do because you allow them to know more about you, your depth of character. You see this in films where they just, they, they branch off back to the main protagonist's childhood and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And again, it's a, it's a story-based narrative that makes a massive impact on our perceptions. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the whole stories of, well, the whole narrative of um, being being who you are and then learning from, I mean, I, I, I can't remember where we were. We were somewhere and you, were, you, you said to me that as history as a topic, it doesn't interest you. You'd much rather have the art and, and that side. And I get it. It's, it's a slightly different tangent and what we mean by history in this context is slightly different to what you were just saying. And when we walked around, and we, we, I think we were in a fort and we were walking around and you were like, I get why people enjoy this even though it's not my thing. And I can do the same thing with the art. I I look at a piece of art and I go, this speaks to me. Mm. I mean, one particular piece I can remember, it's four or five hundred years old and it looks 3D. You walk past it and it looks 3D. It genuinely looks like you can reach in Mm. and touch the water on this particular painting. Mm. And then you come into like the Tate Modern and you go, as you say, if you don't know what you're looking at, you go, this is, this is a box on a wheel. Like, I don't get it. But yeah. it's still, the, it's not necessarily what's on the page or, or what they've done, which is, I mean, the, the classic example, there's a urinal in the Tate Modern, that's a piece of art. And you go, what? Mm. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. It was Copenhagen, Copenhagen, by the way, we were in, in that fort. I mean, the urinal was actually, um, the artist was uh, Picasso. He's got the Urano, which is interesting as well. It's like, whoa, it's, it's, but anyway, yeah, go and have a look at it. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the sort of in the Tate Modern. Um, yeah, you were, you were talking about the, the um, sort of evolution of art, right? Because most people don't realise that before the Industrial Revolution, art was about sim- symmetry. So, you know, you pay an artist a lot of money to create knives and forks that were symmetrical because it was a sign of wealth. Well, after the Industrial Revolution, symmetry was really easy. So what happened is art became very boring because it could be mass produced. Therefore, what people had to do was obviously develop the latent part of their personality to create new art. And obviously, since then, it's progressed. Just understanding that makes you go, ah, that makes sense. And then you think about it in other areas like content creation, you know, short format content's only been around a few years. And you think how much you've had to adapt to being in a vertical screen rather rather than a than a standard 1080p video things have to evolve and you know if you show someone in a hundred years uh, sorry if you show someone like in a hundred years time a vertical video versus a cyber they're not going to know the difference unless you teach them the history of the years people spent watching content and the creativity involved in making engaging content nowadays that's why the whole process is so interesting yeah and and just to take it back to, to storytelling in general if you Everyone assumes that storytelling has always been the same, but there's a very famous early recording of somebody telling a story on a gramophone or whatever the original was, and it sounds weird to us. And then you hear people learn how to speak on gramophones rather than to an audience. And then from there, I suppose gramophones into radio, radio was probably because it became live, you're you're speaking live rather than on a recording so you can't re-record it that changed it as well Mm. television and being able to be seen that changed it what you can do what you can do in in a classroom as opposed to what you do on online it there are techniques which you can cross over but the actual what works on video as opposed to what works in a classroom they're different there are techniques which cross Mm. over but the actual 
things you do are completely different. And I guess we sort of relating that to dating, think about how much dating apps have evolved from, you know, advertisers in, in magazines about looking for a wife to, you know, <laughs> match.com now, Tinder and, and dating apps. There's, there's an evolution in there, isn't there? I think what's interesting is that in any era of human endeavor, I mean, the statistics on this are clear that the, the top 20% get 80% of the success in any area. And that, I think that's been the same through radio, through podcasting, wherever it may be. You're in the top 20, you get the, the rest, the 80% comes to you. And this is why, like, how do you get into the top 20? Well, that's where personal transformation and self-development comes in. Um, Pete, let's um, draw a close to this episode. It's been uh, great just to have you on the chat. We were actually going to catch up for a coffee and I was like, I'll just record it for a podcast. It's going to be better. So yeah, I feel like it was a good, good fun episode. So um, guys, if you like Pete and you want him to be on the show again, <laughs> well, he's going to be anyway, because he's uh, my head coach. But yeah, if you like this episode, because obviously it's very long format compared to normal, send me a direct message on Instagram at Gary Gunshow and just say really love the episode with Pete. And obviously that gives me a bit of good feedback. But thank you very much, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me.